G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You might like to join in our conversation today with all the talk of constitutional change for an Indigenous voice to the Parliament and identity politics focused on skin colours. Let's turn our attention to issues of racism or, as our special guest today says, the only thing worse, imagined racism. Back in 2005, James McPherson and his wife Samantha adopted twin baby boys from Ethiopia. James says he's taught his black children that the only thing worse than racism is imagined racism. He says actual racism can be confronted and dealt with, but imagined racism where racist undertones are presumed in every interaction, is a bondage from which you can never be freed, since the chains exist entirely in your own mind. Well, James McPherson is an independent journalist, political commentator, contributor to Sky News, and the author of the book Notes from Woketopia, Laying Bare the Lunacy of Woke Culture. James McPherson, I might say, a special welcome along to 2020. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate you having me. James, enlarge a little for us about your family. Back to 2005, adopting a couple of beautiful boys from Ethiopia. Yeah, Joe and Ben, they're the absolute joy of our lives. They were um, six months old when we adopted them, born to a homeless 15-year-old girl who was HIV positive. She gave birth to them literally in a shipping container in Ethiopia Uh, They were found, given names, and then put up for adoption. So it was our privilege to adopt them when they were six months old. Twin boys, they're now aged 17, and um, just great kids. We adore them. And at age 17, obviously they're impacted by the things they're beginning to understand and process, things that are going on in the world. Uh, No doubt there's been a lot of those sorts of issues and interactions with Australian community uh, in their 17 years growing up here, but how are they processing things as they're starting to hear about uh, issues around racism and the division that seems to be happening so much of the Western world? I think, I mean, they're still teenagers, but I think they find the obsession with race kind of amusing because they don't really think of themselves as black or white. They're just Joe and Ben, normal 17-year-old boys. So, uh, you know, I I think they find the obsession with race um, kind of funny. You know, the other night I said to one of my boys, it's it's time to turn the television off and go to bed. And he looked at me straight-faced and said, what? Is it because I'm black? And then a smirk started to form across his face and we both burst out laughing because he understands that racism has become a bit of a joke. And, of course, racism is not a joke, uh, but it's it's become a joke because when everything is racist, well, nothing is racist. And uh, and so the kids are pretty well adjusted, to be honest. I've taught them, as you said in your introduction, that uh, they may well encounter racism through their life. And if they do, then deal with it. But 
don't go looking for it and don't imagine it in every interaction. Otherwise, that's going to be a problem in your mind and uh, you can never be free of that. So um, they're pretty normal, well-adjusted kids, I think. Race politics. Race politics seems to be everywhere. And whether we're looking at news that's coming out of the United States uh, since Black Lives Matter uh, or now around issues, uh, even presenting itself uh, in the debate over the voice uh, to the Australian Parliament, uh, it almost seems, though, and uh, let me just make a big, broad uh, statement here. It's almost as though if you're white you're automatically racist, which actually leaves everybody else from different races all not racist at all, but white people do appear to be the target. Any thoughts here on how this sort of race debate seems to be developing, James? Well, we, we've decided that we can divide everybody up into oppressors and the oppressed, and we've decided that if you're white, you're part of the oppressor group, uh, because of because of historical you know colonization, and if you're black, then you are automatically oppressed. But Neil, isn't that the highest form of racism, where you you throw people in a particular bucket based on their skin color? Um, so, but that's the way the world has decided to organize itself at the moment, and it, it's quite unjust. And uh, most of the racism that I see happening these days is done in the name of anti-racism. A word or two thought on Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples because all of a sudden there is a push on for constitutional recognition and there are issues that are being raised around race. I think as a Christian believer, we would be wanting the best for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but there are activists involved in the mix. Any thoughts here about how careful you tread when you're moving this direction and some of the things that sound right may not be as right sounding and as right in practice as they might sound? Yeah, I think your assertion that um, everybody in Australia wants the best for Indigenous people. I, I don't think there's anyone who who wouldn't want, you know, the gap to be closed, as they say, and for Indigenous people to do well. Um, and evidence of that is that we spend $30 billion of taxpayer money on Indigenous affairs every year. That's a lot of money. And I don't see anyone calling for that to be cut because we recognise there are problems and we want to help. But the idea that we need to change the constitution in order to give one group of people a special say on legislation based on nothing more than their skin colour is really just dividing the nation by race. Not only that, but just because some people are black doesn't mean they can speak for all blacks. So that's another problem. And in fact, one of the challenges that the Labor government have got at the moment is that they've got Indigenous politicians who don't want the Indigenous voice. So does the Indigenous voice speak for those Indigenous people or where's their voice? Uh, and, of course, you've got the other problem, which is uh, this constitutional change uh, is forever. At what point do you say, you know what, um, we have now reached a point where everybody in Australia has a fair go and the events of 200 years ago don't need to dictate how you live your life today. Therefore, we don't need a voice anymore. Well, there's no provision for it to ever end. So in perpetuity, we've got this racial divide being suggested 
for our constitution. Um, it sounds good because, as I said, it's based on the idea that, well, we want the best for Indigenous people. And there's, there's not a person in this country who doesn't want that. But as you said, just because something sounds good doesn't mean when you examine the detail that it necessarily is the right thing. And if I can say one more thing, Neil, about this, if Anthony Albanese wants Indigenous voices uh, to have input, he can do that this afternoon. I mean, he's got 11 Indigenous parliamentarians in the federal parliament right now. He can pick up the phone and talk to any one of them. He can pick up the phone and talk to any Indigenous activist in the country. You don't need to change the constitution to survey Indigenous people. You can do that any time you like. And uh, so it's a, a constitutional change that is completely unnecessary, divides the country by race, and doesn't do a thing to make a difference in the life of a, a kid who's not getting to school or a, a woman who's struggling with domestic violence or a man who can't get a job. Of course, if you make a change to the Constitution, as you say, then it's there forever. It's there in perpetuity. Uh, at the moment, we have 11 Indigenous parliamentarians and uh, perhaps you know and as there's been argument uh, you know that's perhaps more than there's ever been so we've got an aboriginal voice to the parliament now but there's no guarantee that the 11 will be there in perpetuity either so there is a certain protection in the thought that you might actually put these things into concrete into our constitution any thoughts around the fact that you can have a short-term response or there is a need for a longer-term response Look, we, every Australian has a voice to Parliament. It's called your local MP. And as you said, um, at the moment, uh, to use the language of the left, um, Indigenous parliamentarians are overrepresented in Parliament. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad because the whole representation thing, you know what, you elect a local member and if it ends up as, uh, you know, 100 Indigenous MPs, well, that's a matter for local electorates. Um, we have a wonderful system of government in this country we have one of the most peaceful, stable democracies in the world, um, and it, it makes no sense to go and make changes that really won't achieve uh, much difference in the lives of Indigenous people in communities where real change is required. Of course, uh, the focus of the debate around the voice is on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, can't be ignorant of the fact that there are an awful lot of migrants who've come to Australia over generations and they also have made a huge contribution to Australian society. Uh, you can tend to uh, over-represent the debate around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians should those migrants be forgotten in the debate and ought there be some sort of recognition that comes into the Constitution for all of those who've made contribution in Australian life? The, the very brilliant Indigenous MP Jacinta Price uh, offered that perhaps we should have an Asian voice to Parliament so that Penny Wong, the Labor MP, uh, can be represented. If we ever want to know, well, how can we help Penny Wong, well, we won't ask Penny, we'll just ask the Asian voice to Parliament. Now, she was being uh, um, sarcastic, but the point was very well made. Um, sure, have an Indigenous voice, let's have an Asian voice, we could have an Italian voice, we could have an elderly voice, a disabled voice. Where do you end with this? We, we have a system of government where everybody gets a voice, it's called the ballot box, and um, it's, it's the best form of government the world has ever been able to uh, conceive of. Um, we shouldn't be tampering with it.
You've been outspoken as a critic of recent times uh, of Labor MP Anne Alley, who's the Minister for Early Childhood Education. Uh, She says that the proposed code of conduct for politicians should focus on racism and microaggressions towards people of colour. Uh, she's uh, saying that uh, that that's uh, she's saying that's alarming. Uh, what are your thoughts around uh, around Anne Alley? The sorts of things she's been pushing for, and whether they might actually uh, be valuable or actually detrimental long run. Yeah, Anne Alley is the uh, federal minister for early childhood, and she wrote in a submission to Parliament that she had, and I quote, witnessed instances of subtle racism and microaggressions towards people of colour. Well, notice that she doesn't complain of racism, but of subtle racism, and she doesn't complain of aggression towards people of colour. She complains of microaggressions. Well, I would have thought that was cause for celebration. Um, Whatever racism she says does exist in Parliament is evidently so subtle, it's barely perceptible. Um, And that's what a microaggression is. It's it's an offence so tiny you've got to examine it closely before you can be certain whether or not you should be traumatised by it. So um, this idea that we've got to start pointing out what they call microaggressions, um, it, it, it's an aggression so tiny that you've got to receive special training to be able to spot it. This, this is finding problems where problems do not exist. And, and I made the point in my article in The Australian Um, As a parent with black children, this sort of stuff doesn't help my children. This teaches my children to go reading between the lines in every conversation, to uh, go sifting through the entrails of every interaction, because maybe there was racism there that they weren't aware of. So maybe if they look more closely, they'll find racism. I don't want my kids looking for racism when they talk to you. I don't want my kids walking through a shopping centre imagining racism hiding behind every corner. I want them to live lives free where they express themselves, they believe the best of others and others believe the best of them. And as I said earlier, if they encounter racism, then they can deal with it. But don't imagine it everywhere because they can never be free of that because that's the sort of racism that exists only in their own mind. So um, Anne Ali is wanting to institutionalise something to help my children. She's actually going to hinder my children if she keeps going on about microaggressions and subtle racism. Just let people get on with their lives. You know, um, Thomas Sowell, the great African-American economist, made the point that the best way to stop racism is to stop talking about racism. And in this country, we've got one of the most inclusive most diverse, most welcoming countries on earth, and yet people talk about racism as if this is one of the worst places for a person of colour to possibly live. Well, you could only say that if you're deliberately being deceitful or if you've never left this country to uh, go to other parts of the world. Um, Anne Ali, I'm sure, is a very nice person, but she doesn't help black people by trying to issue microaggressions and subtle racism. As you're appearing to say here, James, even the voice debate, if you talk about racism, you run the risk of exacerbating racism because there are those, and perhaps those are activists, who are focusing on the microaggressions. And this is what produces uh, what I mentioned in the introduction, and we'll enlarge on this as we continue in the conversation, inviting listeners to join in too. The thing that's worse than racism 
imagined racism. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. A conversation around racism. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own perception. Uh, You might have your own insight. Uh, Perhaps you're in one of those communities where you're listening to our broadcast today and there's a a significant Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community in your neighbourhood. You might like to let us know what you think. Love to hear from people in those communities. So 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is James McPherson, independent journalist, political commentator, contributor to Sky News. Talking through these sorts of things, James, uh, the microaggressions, as you say, these things can overtake your mind. You're looking for... Uh, those things that you can perceive to be racist in people, almost like a paranoia. Uh, any thoughts here? Uh, some d- developing this a little further. Microaggressions. How do we how do we think about those? How do we deal with them? I'll give you an example, Neil. This is a fictitious example, but um, you can imagine if uh, if someone asked one of my sons, you know, where are you from, and and they took immediate offence as if that question implies that somehow because they're black, they can't be Australian. Um, well, well, that would be very foolish on the part of my boys if they reacted like that to an innocent question. But when you start making a of so-called microaggressions, what you do is you train a small group of people to always be ready to take offence and you train everybody else to be petrified of giving offence and therefore afraid to say anything. And so you get yourself into a ridiculous situation where because I'm scared that if I ask uh, my black son where he's from, he will interpret that as, what, you don't think I can be Australian because I'm black? So I don't ask him where he's from. And then because I never ask him where he's from, he interprets my lack of interest as somehow me not being interested in him because he's black. And so you get into this cycle of imagined racism where everybody's feeling offended or like they're walking on eggshells where nothing's actually happened. Um, when my kids were young, a school teacher rang up very upset and uh, I said, what happened? And, and she said, oh, I've, I've made a terrible mistake. I've, I've been racist towards your son. And I said, well, well, what happened? She said, well, your son offered to clean the whiteboard and without even thinking, just as a joke, I said, well, well, you should really clean the blackboard. And, and she said, as soon as I said it, I was horrified and I just, I, I just, I felt so terrible and I'm just ringing to ask, could you put him on the phone so I could apologise for my racism? And I said, look, let me call you back. And so I, I asked my son, who was in primary school, I asked him about this incident and I said, what did you think? And he said, he rolled his eyes. He said, Dad, her jokes are even worse than yours. I, I said, wait a second, do you, th- do you think she was making fun of you because you were black? He said, no, it was just a stupid pun. So I rang the teacher back and I said, look, we know you. Um, We know you're a lovely person. We know you're not racist. Please don't apologize to my son for racism because you weren't being racist. It was just a dumb joke. But if you apologize for racism, you're going to teach my son that every silly joke and every pun and innuendo is somehow coming from a place of racism when in actual fact, most of the time it's not. And uh, so she never apologised to my son and I was glad she never apologised because it would have been stupid and actually counterproductive to apologise for that. So um, I I think we just need to relax, recognise we live in a great country. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. My son came home from school one time, he said, 
kid at school called me a piece of poo. I said, why did he call you a piece of poo? He said, he said, I'm brown, so I'm a piece of poo. And, and, and Neil, I didn't get all upset as a parent. I just calmly said to my son, what did you say? And he said, well, I told the kid that he's a bird poo because he's white. And I laughed and said, great response. Do you want some McDonald's? And we went and got a burger. Um, I, I think that's the way typically we need to be. You can take the heat out of these things and not make it bigger than Ben-Hur. And again, I'm not playing down racism, but I'm saying that the left, they have turned racism into a joke. And that's if you care about racism, then you ought not turn it into a joke by imagining that everything is racism because then real racism is able to be gotten away with. So I think these things are important to discuss. Of course, if we're having a debate around the voice, race is prominent. Uh, We're in training, as you say, uh, training to walk on eggshells. There's always going to be someone in the group who does overstep the mark, who does say the wrong things, who does look especially racist. Uh, Is there benefit in the fact that when there is a debate on and even a conversation that we're having like this today that does train us to say perhaps right things, Uh, But, uh, of course, there's uh, the issues around offence and who hears those that might never be resolved. But is there a sense in which there can be some good in some level of training? Or is that too much down the lines of, uh, you know, uh, responding to propaganda of those who want to manipulate and change our culture? What are your thoughts here? Personally, I get worried when they start to do anti-racism training. Um, I I don't need training to be a decent person. Uh, But but I think... There's, there's a, a compulsion in people now to prove their virtue and to demonstrate that they're virtuous by being anti-racist. And, and, uh, and, and so the way to prove that you're not racist is to make a big deal of the fact that you are not racist. But in doing that, all you do is, is bring race to the fore when my boys just want to be treated like normal people. They don't want to be talking about race all the time. I tell my kids... The fact that you're black is the least interesting thing about you. And because, I mean, they've got incredible um, intellect. They're very funny. They're brilliant at sport. Um, they've got interesting opinions on all sorts of things. The fact that they're black is, is, to be honest, the most insignificant thing about them. So to keep bringing that to the fore and making that the point of discussion is really to, um, to, to do an injustice to two human beings who are amazing people. The media is in the mix, and when there are those, and perhaps as you say, a small group of people who are always ready to take offence, it's those who are taking offence who are going to be in the headlines, and it looks like everybody's in the same boat. What are your thoughts for the way these things get propagated uh, through the media, uh, mainstream media picking up on perhaps uh, the idea that uh, all these microaggressions, that does amount to real racism. Uh, then you've got other sides in the uh, in the uh, more conservative media who might be uh, talking about the things we are now. But the media plays a big role in, in the way people perceive what's happening in the debate. Look, let's talk about Meghan Markle, because I think she's an interesting example of this. Meghan Markle is one of the most privileged people in the world. She lives in a $20 million house, I think it is, in the USA. Um, she, she, she really doesn't have a worry in her life. But Meghan Markle's not silly. She understands the currency of popular culture, and the currency of popular culture is oppression or victimhood. And so she's gone to great lengths to make out like she has been um, badly treated because of her colour, 
and she's uh, suffered terribly um, because as a black woman, the royal family were racist towards her. The, and I think we all know that uh, Meghan Markle is, is not disadvantaged at all, but disadvantage is the currency that people recognise. So I think you need to take into account when you hear people, particularly our political elite, uh, claiming they've been hard done by because of race, um, you've got to ask yourself, were, did, did you really suffer racism or have you just worked out the currency of the culture is victimhood and so you are selling yourself as a victim so that you have moral authority and you have cultural currency? And I think that's very prevalent at the moment and it skews the entire debate. Is there a risk that if we uh, implement a constitutional change and create an Aboriginal voice to the Parliament that you actually might be cementing in place the victimhood of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? And as I've heard one commentator suggest, uh, then that would need to be continued. There would be a continuation of of, uh, perpetuating that victimhood and uh, to actually... Um, to make sure that the uh, that that body continues to exist. Any thoughts here about what will happen if we do have the voice and it's given on the grounds of victims versus perpetrators? I, I tell you how it will undermine democracy. And and Anthony Albanese has been at pains to say, you know, the voice doesn't have any special power. It's just an advisory body. Well, could you imagine a white prime minister ignoring? the advice from the Indigenous voice. He will immediately be accused of racism. And so it's all very well to say, well, this this um, this voice to Parliament is not a third chamber of Parliament. It's, it's just an advisory body. But, um, you know, woe to the, the white Prime Minister who ignores the Indigenous voice and uh, goes against it. Um, he'll be accused of all sorts of things. Uh, we're already being told that if you vote against the voice, you're racist. Well, if we're being told that in the lead up to the referendum, once this thing is legislated, imagine if you disagree with it then. So anyone with a brain and eyes to see and ears to hear what's happening should already be very wary of Australia going down this track. Let's take a call or two from listeners. Let's hear from James, is who's in Kyabram in Victoria. Hi, James. Welcome along. Hi, Neil. Hi, James. Um, I... I, hi, yeah, I'm just, I guess the biggest thing is perception, isn't it? It comes back to how we perceive things. Someone challenged me with that once. I, I actually thought the Aboriginal voice in Parliament would be a great thing as I'd heard a story of someone who wanted to set up a, like a hotel resort on a coastal line area of Australia, but the Aboriginal people uh, advised them that this is one of the greatest breeding areas for prawns in this vicinity if you if you come in here and start making changes to this you're going to affect affect the whole um uh, prawn industry you're going to affect the you know the, the normal um workings in that uh, ecosystem and and so you know other areas burning off and things so i for me having aboriginal voice wouldn't be a, a thing of a racism thing although um but yeah that's that, for me i thought it's a good it's a good idea it's a good thing to have them as the custodians to advise us about areas that we don't 
really know how to deal with it. You're raising some important points here, I think, James, around the thought of Aboriginal land rights and whether that's different to having an Aboriginal voice to the Parliament. Uh, Let's get a thought or two from our guest, James McPherson. Your thoughts for James in Kyabram? James in Kyabram, I think that story is brilliant and it, it proves why we don't need a voice to Parliament because there is no voice to Parliament right now and yet they were made aware there's a major fishery issue there and so they should consider that in terms of the development. Now, that happened, as you tell it, before we've got any voice to Parliament. So doesn't that prove that this can already happen without having to change the Constitution? The other thing that's happening, of course, is that Dan Andrews in Victoria decided to rename a hospital in honour of Queen Elizabeth and the local Indigenous people complained, why were they not consulted? That had nothing to do with land rights. It was just that that area has always been called after by an Indigenous name and they thought, well, if you're going to change the name of the hospital, we should be consulted in Queensland. Uh, Anastasia Palaget has announced a, a hydro project and uh, Indigenous people in the area have said, well, hang on, we haven't been consulted yet. Why haven't we been consulted? They're, of course, the previous owners. Well, the current owners of the land hadn't even been consulted yet. Once we get this voice to Parliament, it will um, increase demands that Indigenous people be consulted about everything from developments to the changes of names for hospital and everything else you can imagine. But back to your story, I think your story proves my point that um, people can speak up and make government aware of issues without having to have a constitutionally legislated body to do so. James in Kyabram, uh, how are you feeling about that? Well, you know, the, like the Bible says, um, through the multitude of counsellors, um, you know, so so we can sort of have it, rather than have them having saying, why weren't we consulted? But if they have it, someone in there, then, but not that I want to change the constitution, but that the, just that the multitude of counsellors can help us in making decisions so the more people we have them advising them and saying, hey, have you considered this part, putting their, their you know, puppets in or a lot more, you know, towards that issue, I, you know, that was my thoughts. Not constitutional changes, but rather than having them say, why haven't... But, that, so they're aware. They're aware what's going on and they can con- contribute. So um, that, consultation that is clearly a very, very essential element of how we manage all of those issues in the nation. But James, in Kyabram, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Sterling is in Ararat in Victoria. Hi, Sterling. Welcome. Hi, Neil. Thanks for that. And, and, and hi, hi, James. Look, guys... Uh, five years ago, we were having a debate about marriage equality and we were asked a rather benign question, do you support people's, uh, you know, choice to marry whoever they want? And people voted yes, obviously, and it got up. However, since then, we've seen a lot of things like transgenderism, gender identity, gender fluidity, and goodness knows where it's going to go. My main concern is it's a benign enough question, do you support an Aboriginal voice to Parliament enshrining constitution? Um, I'm a bit worried that that's the wrapping and it's not until after we buy it do we find out what the contents are. I'm, I'm a little concerned what this is. This may be another Trojan horse like the, like the marriage uh, equality 
legislation. Sterling, good thoughts all about the wrapping. Uh, James McPherson, thoughts here for Sterling? Sterling, you're only the second caller of the day, but I'm going to award you caller of the day award. <laughs> I think you make a great point. Um, you know, when you're dividing the country by race, it's not benign. The question, as you pointed out, is going to sound lovely and it will appeal to people's good nature. But that's the problem. And the, the same sex marriage question was the same framing. It appealed to people's better instincts but it came with an agenda, and this will prove to be the same. I think you're spot on, Sterling. Sterling, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. James, let me bring in a dimension here, which we haven't really raised, and uh, regular listeners know this is the way we talk about things on 2020. As Christians, we'll say we are one race, uh, the human race. Uh, we can talk about, you know, different ways people define races. We can say this skin colour or that skin colour or this uh, characteristic or that characteristic, but ultimately we're one race. And so arguments over skin colour and soul physical characteristics, these are the sorts of things that perhaps as Christians we can process through a worldview that's actually shaped by the Bible. Any thoughts here for how Christians see issues around race? Yeah, the Apostle Paul writes very simply, he says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. So he, he, uh, he deals with gender and he deals with race or ethnicity and now, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, when I come to Christ, that doesn't mean I stop being a white Australian. So what does Paul mean when he says, well, there's neither male nor female? When I come to Christ, I'm still male. So, so what's Paul talking about? What he's talking about is this. He says, when you come to Jesus, your gender or your ethnicity, they stop being the essential thing about you and they become the incidental thing about you. The essential thing about our character is, is that we're made in the likeness of God. Incidentally, I'm a man. Essentially, I belong to Jesus. Incidentally, I'm a white Caucasian. Now, when your race or your gender is essential to who you are, it becomes a right that you demand. But when your gender or your race is incidental to who you are, Instead of it being a, um, a right you demand, it becomes a, a gift that you bring to contribute to everybody else. And so as a Christian, it doesn't mean we, we're no longer gendered or we're no longer belonging to a particular race. It just means that's no longer the essential thing for us and that's no longer the prism through which we see every issue. Um, our race and gender still exists, but it's a gift we bring to contribute, not a, a right that we demand. And, and, and that's the recipe for um, harmony in society. And as Christians, that's, that's what we have. And that's our contribution to the, the debate. And as Christians, of course, and recognising that there are in our history some things we'll classify as some atrocities, uh, particularly where there's been massacres and all sorts of things and people will want to divide there along race lines. But there is an essential thing to recognise and get your thoughts here, James, that the Christian community, based on a biblical truth, has been able to see all people as equal and therefore... There's a potential Christian, 
opportunity here to be able to speak into the debate as it continues because we've been the ones now with the track record that have actually recognised the equal value of Aboriginal people, whereas that was not recognised outside of Christianity. Jesus brought a radical thought to Jews of the time, and that is that you you become right with God, not by birth, not by being born into a particular family, but by faith. And therefore, your relationship with God is not based on your um, family lineage. It's based on the condition of your own heart. This was a radical idea, but it sets everybody free to be judged on their own merits rather than to be thrown into a bucket because of their skin color or their ethnicity. Now, this is a wonderful gift, and this creates freedom, this idea that God judges us or deals with us according to our hearts, not according to our our family lineage. And therefore, we deal with people according to who they are on their own merits rather than prejudging them based on their skin color or their ethnicity. It's one of the great gifts that Christianity has given to the world. And wherever Christianity flourishes, human freedom flourishes because people are able to be judged on their merits rather than prejudged according to stereotypes based on gender or race or any other characteristic that uh, you might like to name. That's a wonderful response. Come back to the referendum for a moment here. Uh, We'll be asked to vote uh, a yes or a no for an Aboriginal voice to the Parliament uh, for inclusion in our Constitution and uh, some recognition in the Constitution. I guess not too many are arguing with that, but how that looks and if that includes a voice to the Parliament, we'll be faced with a referendum, James, and uh, there'll be a side and... Uh, There'll be an opposition, the yes and no vote. Any thoughts as to how that looks like it might unfold? We might recall back to the marriage debate when uh, there was funding for a yes vote, but there was no funding for a no vote. How do you see things developing with a referendum that might be upon us around this, uh, the Aboriginal voice? It's a great question, Neil. The, The funding issue has been raised in the media. I'm not sure how many people would have paid much attention to it, but it's very interesting because... Anthony Albanese has floated the idea that the government will not provide funding to either side of the debate. Now, that sounds very fair, but you've got to understand that corporate Australia has already gotten behind the yes vote for a voice to parliament. Now, there's a reason corporate Australia do that. It's the same reason that corporate Australia get behind every LGBTQ plus initiative. It's not because they care about gay people. It's because, as we talked earlier, they want to demonstrate how virtuous they are. It's a signal. And so when the government says, well, we're not going to fund either side of the debate, they make that comment knowing full well the yes vote will be funded by corporate Australia, which is why Indigenous people like Warren Mundine, a former president of the Labor Party, why Jacinta Price, a current um, federal member of parliament, are arguing that there needs to be funding for both sides because if there's no funding, the no vote is at a distinct disadvantage because corporate Australia, wanting to prove that they are not racist, has already gotten behind the yes vote. All right. Coming back to microaggressions, this is where we began our conversation and uh, talking about the way we're offended by some of the comments that we might hear or uh, some of the actions that some people have. 
As a Christian believer, uh, James, dealing with microaggressions, uh, explaining these sorts of things when you're in a uh, a controversial situation. Maybe there's a situation of tension you find yourself in. Uh, you're dealing with this either whether it's a race issue or whether it's around uh, sexuality or around religion. Uh, your thoughts here on how we might think about dealing with those microaggressions uh, and not being overwhelmed by feeling the sort of oppression that we might feel if we're going to be offended, but then also how we actually conduct ourselves in this sort of debate in the situation as we navigate a way forward. Thoughts here from from you on microaggressions? Well, Neil, this might sound very simplistic, but when it comes to being offended, my advice would be don't. Don't be offended. Being offended is a choice. And one of the problems we've got in this country now is that the government have decided that it's their job to protect our feelings, which is why there are now limits as to what you can say. In Victoria, for instance, and in Tasmania, it's an offence to uh, humiliate, ridicule or offend someone on the basis of protected attributes such as gender, race, sexuality, uh, religion, although uh, religion seems to be the one that you're allowed to get away with scot-free. Um, the government's job is not to protect our feelings. As soon as you da- go down that road, you're now making laws that are entirely subjective because, as one of your listeners said earlier, um, offence is a perception. Um, it, it's, it's very um, subjective. So as Christians... Um, you know, we're warned about the danger of taking offence because it creates a root of bitterness. And, you know, you meet people who something happened 10 years ago, they took offence and they're still bitter and twisted over it. So as a believer, um, I don't take offence and it's easy for me not to take offence whenever I remember that Jesus has forgiven every offence I've ever caused him. If I'm going to receive that, how can I therefore not give that to my fellow man and forgive and let go any offence that he might cause me. So that would be my first point. The second point in terms of giving offence is none of us want to give offence, but we've become so afraid that now we dare not say what we're really thinking. And this is not kind because it it stunts the growth of society. How can a civilisation progress if no one can speak their mind and say what they honestly believe? If, if it becomes unlawful or impolite to have honest conversation, then you can never grow, you can never progress, you can never discover wisdom. And so this, this progressive idea of um, never saying anything that upsets anyone is actually not progressive, it's regressive. It takes us backwards because you can never discover new things. We, we've, we've got to be unafraid of ideas and of ideas that might be disagreeable but that's how we reach wisdom and as Christians we ought to take the lead in that sort of demeanour to public conversation. Some wonderful insights today. Anytime you see or hear of the word offend you'll know that you're dealing with feelings oftentimes with those microaggressions and people won't tell you what they really think if they're walking on eggshells so you do want people to be honest And, of course, a wonderful insight there that forgiveness that we understand uh, based on Christ and his forgiveness. Forgiveness is the remedy for offence when we ourselves feel offended. Uh, Just great insights once again today. 
Uh, for those who want to connect with James McPherson, you can hear there's just a tremendous depth of wisdom in the things that he's saying. No doubt he'll be uh, journaling and writing articles, uh, blogging about this sort of thing uh, over the coming times in the lead up to a referendum. And you might want to connect with James McPherson, be able to catch more of these thoughts. Well, James is an independent journalist political commentator, contributor to Sky News. You can subscribe to his daily blog absolutely free. You can subscribe a new article every morning on faith and politics and culture. And uh, to do that, you can do that going to James McPherson, M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N dot substack dot com. James McPherson dot substack dot com. Uh, you might look out for James's book, Woketopia, Laying Bare the Lunacy of Woke Culture. And you might also look out for James on Sky News. So it's become a very regular thing now. James, how's your experience been with, uh, with the Sky News connections? I've got to say, Neil, that the whole television thing is new to me, but I'm, I'm loving it. So um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights at 9 p.m. on Sky News. It's called The, the World According to Rowan Dean. Rowan Dean is the host. Rowan Dean is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a guest on that show uh, every night at 9 p.m. And so if you've got access to Sky through Foxtel or through the Flash News app that you can get on your phone, uh, I'd love you to watch it. The, the other place you can get my writing is um, at The Spectator magazine. And if people are looking for um, good news sources, um, spectator.com.au, uh, you can subscribe there. And they, they publish four or five articles every day. Uh, from a, it's it's not a Christian publication, but it's very much a conservative, um, traditional publication, uh, giving great opinions on um, politics and and cultural matters. Um, a lot of Christians write for the Spectator, and I would encourage people if they're looking for a, a really good alternative news source. Um, you can't do worse than subscribing to uh, The Spectator magazine. Well, there's a lot of ways you can connect with James McPherson. And James, uh, really appreciate your insights today. And uh, no doubt we'll get a chance to catch up again on perhaps even a different issue. But uh, appreciate your insights today around race, racism and imagined racism. James McPherson, thanks for being with us on 2020. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.